and welcome to Diary of an Overcomer, the podcast that takes a look at the issues of addiction, domestic violence, and homelessness through the stories of women who have overcome them. Each episode, we highlight one issue and share a story of an overcomer, discussing the common questions people have and the possible solutions that are out there. I'm your host, Jen Harp, along with my co-host, Carol Patterson, the CEO of Shepherd's Gate, a nonprofit that helps women and children escape the cycles of addiction, homelessness, and abuse. Between the two of us, we have over 45 years experience working with people who have struggled in these areas, and we both share a deep desire to help people overcome. So thank you for listening, and let's get started. Welcome to the third episode in a three-part series on homelessness. In episode one of this series, we can we covered an overview of homelessness in the U.S. In the second episode, we covered the growing population of the elderly homeless. And in this episode, we will be discussing the hidden homeless. The questions we'll be answering today are, what does the term hidden homeless mean? And along with that, we're going to be discussing how are the homeless counted, And also, why is it important to get an accurate count of people experiencing homelessness in the U.S.? The second question we'll be dealing with with is, who are these hidden homeless? And of course, the third one, how can we help those that are hiding and homeless? Carol, this is a big one. And I think more than ever with the aftermath of the pandemic, we'll see many more people have to resort to this option to survive. Are you in agreement? Absolutely. It is a an urgent matter that everyone needs to be aware of across the country in the United States of who, who are the homeless, how are they counted and what can we do um, with the increasing numbers that are rising and what are alternative methods of housing? Okay. So let's get started. As with each episode, we have a story that correlates with the topic being discussed And today's episode is no different, except that the story is my own. Let me start off with, I have never been homeless. My story today only chronicles my efforts to understand a problem that I was running across working for Shepherd's Gate, the nonprofit that sponsors this podcast and that Carol is now the CEO of. Shepherd's Gate helps women and children coming out of homelessness, abuse, and addiction. And at this time in my career, I was the director of marketing And I would document the journeys of the women who came through our organization. After almost 12 years of working there, I realized as I was listening to a woman tell me about the two hours each morning she spent on the city bus just to get her son to school and then herself to work, that I had not even ridden a city bus before. The next day, I rode that bus with her, wanting to understand more about what she needed to go through just to do a simple task that someone with a car could do in about 20 minutes. And I was seeing this theme of women living in their cars with their children coming up over and over again. And I got this idea of an event or what I like to call an event experience where we could give people a micro taste of what it is like to be homeless to help them become more compassionate for those basically living on the streets. After a bunch of meetings, we came up with a safe event that would raise awareness and funds by having ordinary donors and volunteers sleep in their cars for 24 hours. That's how we came up with the name. It was called 24 in your car. 
And to my surprise, several people jumped on board with this experience to figure out how to better care for the needs of the homeless in our community. For both this event, I volunteered to live in my sister's van for a week. And not only that, but chronicle my time on a vlog. Little did I realize how this time living in a van would absolutely change my life. Basically, when I started out planning, I figured it would sort of be like urban camping and nothing could be further from the truth. There were no s'mores, and I tell you, there were lots of late night crying. My backstory that I had kind of built for myself, I was a woman who had a job but could not afford the rent in the Bay Area. A story that is very um, believable and has been played out in real life over and over again. I'm sure you have seen some of the stories in the news of teachers and college students, waitresses, and even tech professionals that will pop up every once in a while talking about their time living in a vehicle just so they could work and survive. So that was me for a week, a working professional who was living in a van. Uh, the day before this homeless experience, I prepped my sister's van with hanging curtains to cover the windows, a foam mat and sleeping bags for my bed. I had a camping chair and I took a TV tray for my pop-up office, and I had a small bag for my clothing and toiletries, and of course, my Bible, because it was only by the grace of God that I was going to make it through that week. At that time, the state of California gave a certain amount a month of general assistance, and I think they would do it for a period of two to four months. So I gave myself 25% of that for the week I was homeless, which was about $50. That had to pay for gas for food and a little set aside to budget for insurance and registration because when your house is your home, you don't want it towed away. So it wasn't quite $50 uh, that I had for that week. So off I went that first year on a week-long adventure, clueless on just how much I would be challenged and stretched and how much my perspective would be changed. Okay, the first set of questions we'll be discussing are what does the term hidden homeless mean? How are the homeless counted and why is it important to get an accurate count of them? Those were bundling together. Many people who become homeless do not show up in official figures. This is known as the hidden homeless. This includes people who become homeless but find a temporary solution by staying with family members or friends, living in squats or in their cars, places where it's just temporary. It is not a permanent solution. Carol, how are they counted, these ones that are what we're calling the hidden homeless? I think it's uh, important to talk about that the homeless count only categorizes two categories, sheltered and unsheltered. We're talking about a portion of the unsheltered, but another category that's called hidden homeless. And these are people that are living in their cars that are not in a common area to be counted. So if someone is normally a homeless person will tell you how they navigate during the night and that they don't stay in one place because of safety issues or they're scared of the police. So they will actually move the car several times during the night. That person would not be counted in the homeless count. That person would be a hidden person. It also could be someone a very common term is couch hopping. And this is anyone that you know 
or came in contact with that you're begging them to sleep on their couch or in a spare room or even their garage, those people wouldn't be counted. And so often women will go from place to place with their children and sleep in living rooms or in garages with their kids. It's only a matter of time that their friends or their new acquaintances say, we can't take these kids anymore. You're going to have to leave. It's a very unsecure place that you're not guaranteed that you're going to be able to stay another night. And then there are those that just sleep in bushes that were not counted because you have to think that this point in time count happens every January and some counties allocate one night to count or two nights to count. And let's drill down to Alameda County. So they pay 200 people to be the guides. And these are usually people in recovery or previously homeless. They are there to help navigate the 500 volunteers in Alameda County to count. And Alameda County only does one night where some counties do too. 700 people spend the night in the dark going from encampment to encampment or shelter to shelter counting the homeless. And they ask them a series of questions, very brief, but it's valuable information because then we can know what's the age, what's the race, why why did they fall into homelessness? And this is a mandate by the federal government in order for a county to qualify for housing resources each year. That is the methodology, but it doesn't count everyone. There's so many people that it misses. And I'll probably come back to it later in our conversation about the drastic numbers and the increases. That's quick answer to your question, Jen. And I did find in the research that county will work with shelters in the area to get their count. Like you said, they're either sheltered or unsheltered. And we'll see later on just the discrepancy between how many sheltered places there are available and the number of people that need them. I mean, it's staggering. The other thing you talked about, the point in time, the other one is, of course, We just went through it. The census every 10 years, we're talking about large numbers across the United States. You know, it talks about the Census Bureau devoted three days to counting people who are experiencing homelessness across the country with checks in place to ensure that people aren't counted more than once. Correct. And we were part of that census here at Shepherd's Gate. And they actually checked up on us multiple times to make sure that our our numbers were accurate. So this this census might be very true to what is available to shelter the homeless. It almost, in reading that research, it almost sounds like they've got a good system working with the shelters and resource providers in the areas across the U.S., but it really is the unsheltered. I can't even fathom trying to come up with an accurate count of that because like you talked about, there's so many hidden, there's so many mobile, constantly moving. It's just, it's mind boggling to think about trying to count everybody. 
we talked about this, the 2020 census report found that 580,466 people experienced homelessness in the United States on a single night in 2020. And that's an increase of 12,751 people or an increase of 2.2% from 2019. That figure is not even accurate. Right. Because yeah. Alameda County actually chose this year because of the pandemic, they opted out of uh, counting and they have detained it for one year. So if that county did it, how many more counties that opted out this year? Right. And But that would be for 2021, right? Correct. But I mean, let's just shock. I mean, that's a huge number. Right. Now, let's let's shock everybody out there. So California is the highest place in the United States for the homeless to live, to be. And that's 151,278 people. New York's right behind behind at 92,000. Florida, 28,000. Texas, 25,000. So just imagine California being this high, whether it be in central Los Angeles with, uh, I mean, I think central Los Angeles is 66,436 of that. And then here in the Bay Area where Jen and I are, it, Alameda County is 8,022. San Francisco, is they are 8,035. Contra Costa County, 2,200. And Santa Clara County is coming in at 9,700. Yeah, huge amount huge amounts of people. And if I continue with the shocker in like Alameda County, this count, this last count in 2019. So if it's 8,022, there are 1,710 shelter beds. There are 6,312 people in Alameda County that don't have a shelter bed. They're unsheltered. And then on top of that, put what we're calling the hidden homeless on top of that. We could easily be at 10,000 people here in Alameda County. Right. Just the discrepancy between the amount of shelter beds available and the people that need them. That's 6,000 people that we have no resources, no shelter for. No shelter, no bathrooms, no food. So going back to your 24 in a car, Jen, you were so ahead of your time to develop that, to bring awareness to what it takes to live in a car and the difficulties. I followed your journey every day. I was fascinated by what you um, experienced. And it was so true of a woman trying to survive. And your story was so similar to the women that arrive here at Shepherd's Gate. The team that came up with it, I mean, just brilliant thinking about how we could draw not only awareness, but also funding to help Shepherd's Gate be a part of the solution to this problem that we were seeing over and over again. The inspiration for like kind of my side story was I had women who I had spoken to that were staying at Shepherd's Gate that had held down jobs, you know, whether they were, you know, an overnight manager at a hotel or jobs that they would be mortified if their coworker knew that they were homeless. And so, you know, when you have a job, you might have that income coming in, which I did not, 
you know, take into consideration when I figured out my budget because I wanted to live on the very least that I possibly could come up with. I pretended, you know, not to have the money from a paycheck. But even money with a paycheck, when you're thinking about saving for first and last and, you know, and then taking on rent that has just skyrocketed in recent times, but just all of that for a single woman, even if she does have a decent paying job was overwhelming. And so seeing these stories come out in the paper of people actually going through this and then meeting women who had actually lived this way for a while um, gave me some backstory to go with. And, you know, so you need to stay clean and you need to charge your laptop if you're, you know, working and you need, so there's all this other kind of these issues that you need to take care of in a very discreet way. I did a uh, expose story with channel five about uh, people that live in their cars and that work. And one of the stories was became very well known in the Bay area of how a San Jose state teacher lived in her car with her two dogs. She would come to our nightly shelter and, get her meal. And she would, she always had her cell phone with her. And so one night I went down and sat next to her and I said, so tell me your story. Why are you here? And she shared everything with me and she was willing to share her life with everyone on channel five, because she wanted people to understand just because you have a job and and being a part-time teacher at San Jose State didn't pay enough to live in the Bay Area, especially in Silicon Valley. And she wanted to share with everybody, just like you did, how difficult it is to survive in your car. Then the second story that I did with them was a family, a husband and wife and little girl, and they lived in their van. And the little girl showed us, this is where I sleep in the van. And she was so excited to come to dinner every night and get a meal. And we would have new coats for her and clothes and allowing them to have longer time in the bathroom at night. It was a men's shelter. And we also served families and women food, but we didn't give them anything else. But because they didn't have a restroom to use, that they could use the women's restroom at that shelter for as long as they needed to at night. I definitely go around to churches and educate churches because they have beautiful bathrooms. Sometimes they have gyms with showers. They are a great resource to open up their doors for those that are homeless. It was one one church specifically said to me, well, we could open it up at 9 a.m. and close it at 1 o'clock. I said, you know what? Those hours really don't work in a child's schedule when they have to be at school at 8 a.m. Could you open it at 7 a.m.? And they found that too difficult because the staff wasn't there. But those hidden children that live in their cars, they're, they're the ones that are in the school bathroom trying to wash up in the morning. 
And they probably are bullied and teased because their clothes are not picture perfect and they might smell and they might be dirty. So it just brings down their self-esteem. And eventually those children, they don't want to go to school anymore because they just can't take the teasing. Right. But then let's go back to your story in the 24 in a car. You didn't suffer from mental illness or you didn't have health problems. You had clean clothes that week. The issue could be so much more compounded with other things to struggle day in and day out. The first night, I just, I didn't know what I was getting into. Obviously the first week that I did this, I ended up doing it for three more years, one, one week out of each year. But um, that first time it was, I was just absolutely clueless, but a lot of people would give me suggestions. So I was finding people online because I was doing this through social media and doing updates through social media, YouTube and stuff like that. And so I got a lot of suggestions, but yeah, the big thing is to find a bathroom that's private. So my favorite bathrooms were Starbucks because they were just single rooms that I could lock the door and I could do like a spot bath. I could Mm -hmm. even blow dry my hair. I I had washed my hair one time. It, It is very difficult. And then to go to, there are very few places where someone can take a shower. There is a few places around the county, but but again, you have to have a car to get there. And then I have to have gas to put in that car to get there. It's just like, there's so many problems upon problems that you don't think of when you're just living your normal life. And my disclaimer to this whole thing was, this was a micro taste for me. I had my ATM card in my pocket I knew at any time I could drive home and take a shower and eat a meal and sleep in my bed. So there is a freedom in that. Even though I was pretending for a week, there's still a freedom in knowing that that the people on that are actually living this out do not have. It was it really changed my perspective about a lot of things. I'm so glad you did it. I w- I followed you every day, but it was, it was eye-opening. It was neat once I finished the week, made a lot of new friends, got to know a lot of people through it that are, you know, are still my friends today. <laughs> yeah. And and each year we had we put on more and more challenges to it. So first year I was just kind of feeling it all out and it was an extremely emotional time for me. The second year, we started utilizing more of the county resources that were available, like the soup kitchens and showers and things like that. So that was a whole other level of humility and breaking my pride that I had to go through. And then the third year, we panhandled. I panhandled with a friend Mm. of mine. And that was the worst thing. Both of us agreed that that was the worst thing we've ever done. It was, yeah, just a humiliating time. And I just want to thank my husband for that idea. Coming back to these numbers though, Carol, why are they so important? Because even pulling this together, I, you know, in serving people experiencing homelessness out on the street, sometimes I'll come into contact with people who are counting them for the county or gathering information for the county. And I remember thinking, why is this important? 
but it is very, very important. So mm-hmm. you're going to tell us why. Well, it it gets these government-funded agencies, shelters, and services to be able to have funding and also to understand in your community what percentage are women and children and do services need to change in order to help them. I think that uh, it is raised the red flag in Alameda County, at least, that they quickly need to do something to house people. They recently are passing a new ordinance of tiny homes and allowing a vacant lot to turn into an area where tiny homes or campers can go and also releasing restrictions on campers, such as as in Silicon Valley, where there are areas where there are restrictions for campers to stay overnight and they are lifting those to be able to accommodate. So it helps to change laws. It helps to get additional funding and help for these individuals that are suffering from homelessness. Yeah, because that's why, you know, and we're talking about a good uh, chunk of money that's Mm -hmm. available in $1 trillion in federal funds annually. So what is it going to take to help? And if the, if the number is increased since the pandemic of loss of jobs and, um, being evicted, even though they say they tried not to evict people. Is it going to take doubling those funds to help these people? And then you got to look at the success rate of shelters and services to help people find affordable housing and mental health and health care, all of those things to help them to rebuild their lives and picking them up off of the ground as you shared feeling ashamed of themselves for getting to that spot. So it's, it's going to take a lot and it's not a quick fix and it's not a 90 day program. Um, our, our program here is a year to 16 months because it takes that long to help somebody rebuild every aspect of their life to be able to be healthy enough to carry out a job that's a living wage to afford living in an apartment or a garage. I mean, garages are going for $1,200 to 2000 here in the Bay area nowadays. Yeah. Whoever thought we'd say that good night. (laughs) Um, It may, it, it makes sense why these numbers need to be counted and why it's crucial to get these numbers and facts correct so that proper funding can be allotted for those areas. The next question is, who are these hidden homeless? I know we can give a myriad of scenarios, but in your experience, who are you seeing qualifying for this growing section of the homeless population? There is teens that are a high percentage that are either running from physical or sexual abuse, or they're aging out of the foster care system. So that can be a percentage. It can be percentage of women that are single moms that 
can't afford to have an apartment and a high percentage are, are also men and they could be suffering from loss of job, mental illness, addiction. When you see all of that, then you kind of through these counts can identify what kind of services do you need to start building in your community to help these different categories. I think that the one that breaks my heart the most is seeing young children think that it's the norm to live in a car. And recently I did an exercise with our kids, an art therapy class here at Shepherd's Gate, and they drew their hopes and their fears. Many of them drew living in a car was their fear that that would be their permanent home. An outsider looked at their drawings and said, Carol, did you notice that they put drapes up in their car windows like a home? Mm-hmm. And I, I hadn't seen that. And I'm like, you're so right. They treat this as their home and they think of pretty little drapes in the windows. Um, and all of our kids, their hope is to have a home one day. Every one of them drew a house. And that was their primary hope to have a house one day with mom. One little girl told me, I'm going to pray every day that God blesses us with a home. Those are my heartbreaks when I see children that live in cars and think that's the norm. You know, obviously the hidden homeless, like you said, hit all areas of why people are homeless, mental health, um, drug addiction, things like that, that we expect. But one of the high rates for me was the fact that the two populations, both teens or youth, anyone from 12 to 18 is a large percentage and women and women with children. So these are two very vulnerable groups that are couch surfing, relying on other people for their shelter, temporary shelter, like you said, even a garage, a shed, a car, loaning them a car so that they could sleep in it. And there's so much fear built around that. And that's what kind of defines the hidden homeless, right? Is this fear of for these teens either getting caught and sent back to an abusive home or for these women to get sent back to an abuser or their kids taken away because they can't afford to give them an apartment, which is uh, not true. They can't have their kids taken away just for living in a car. That is correct. It it usually, what I see is that the woman is maybe asleep in the car and she's parked at a, at a park and she's not watching her children. Bystanders call the police because they see that kids are alone and have nowhere to go. And police will come and investigate that type of situation. Right. Or if there's, you know, obviously if there's drug addiction in general, I think to make the statement, it's not correct. Illegal for a woman to live in a car with her child. children, And it's only a matter of time that that car is going to break down and they're not going to be able to service it, afford to, or pay for the registration or tolls and the car is going to be impounded. And that's when they are walking the streets 
just recently a woman shared with me how she lost her car and she lived behind Denny's in the bushes and was sexually assaulted. And how dangerous it is for sexual assault to happen to homeless women. So before we get to the last question, let's go back to the story of my first week living in a van. It's going to tie in with the answer to this last question. So uh, nearly one in 500 Americans is homeless, right? Mostly on the West Coast and the Northeast, according to the estimates. Homeless advocacy um, people say that individuals without permanent housing are chronically undercounted, which is what we're talking about today. It's even harder to track the tens of thousands of people living in their vehicles rather than on the streets or in the shelters because they move around so much. Um, I found one, Sarah Rankin, who's associate professor of law, and she's the director of Homeless Rights Advocacy Project at Seattle University. She says vehicle residency is one of the fastest growing forms of homelessness, which means these homeless will not be counted in these point-in-time counts, typically. The first day in my sister's van, I, you know, my backstory was I was a working, um, so I drove to work as usual. Um, I was excited. Remember, I thought this would be like urban camping. But as the day started wrapping up and people were going home to their families, I was thinking about the reality of where I would park for the night. Before I left work, you know, I basically snuck into the bathroom. I washed my face, brushed my teeth, and I changed into my sweats or my pajamas. Uh, I made sure no one saw me because that was part of my story. And no one wants their coworkers to know that they're homeless. So I kept this very much under the radar. I got in the van. I started driving around that first night trying to find a safe place to park. And in prepping for this time, I had researched and looked for places that I thought would be good to park in a van and stay the night. But when nighttime came, all those places look very foreboding. I ended up in a neighborhood. I parked. I got in the back. I settled in. I tried to go to sleep, but I just kept thinking how mortifying it would be if someone noticed the van and called the police. So I left. I drove behind a dark shop shopping center. I parked. I tried to get some sleep. I woke up two hours later, pretty sure I was going to be murdered. I became very fearful. So I moved again, and this time to a remote, brightly lit section of the Target parking lot. And finally fell asleep. Target ended up being my favorite place to park because the parking lot during the evening had a few cars in it because of the stock people who came in stocked during the night. So I just would kind of park near them so I didn't look too far out, but yet it was brightly lit and I figured it was, and I love Target. Okay. Let's just, <laughs> let's just get real. I had set my alarm for right before sunup so I could sneak away with hopefully no one seeing me. One morning, the gardeners were there. I had to wait a good hour for them to completely do all the bushes and the hedges and blow the parking lot down and everything before I could even get out. You know, it's a matter of flying under the radar. And I found a Starbucks bathroom 
that first day to change and get quickly ready in. And I drove back to work hoping someone would bring in donuts or something to share for breakfast. They didn't, which was kind of uncommon at our office. Usually somebody was always sharing something. They'd bring in something that they baked or made or and nothing, of course. The one morning that I'm like, okay, I wish I... That entire day, I could not really focus. I was tired. I was hungry. I just couldn't stop thinking about where I would park that night. That really was the overwhelming worry throughout the day was I had, you know, I had moved three times the night before and barely got a couple hours of sleep. And I was already anticipating what I was going to do that night. You know, I'd been officially homeless for 24 hours and I just wanted to cry and drive home and take a shower and eat a meal. I seriously, that first day considered giving up and literally each day it grew harder and harder not to give up. It did not become easier at any point in this experiment. Uh, I am happy to say, though, that I did complete my micro experience week of being homeless and then ridiculously agreed to do it one week a year for three years in a row. I was the dingbat, but those weeks did raise over $30,000 for the organization. So that would, that kind of balanced it out. That wasn't so bad, but if you're interested in a good chuckle and watching some of those vlogs from those weeks way back when, you can find them on my YouTube channel at Big Girl on a Mission. Now brings me back to the final question. How can we help people who are the hidden homeless? And this answer is not so easy because the fact is this segment of the homeless population is not easy to recognize. They are flying under the radar. They do not want to be seen for whatever reason. So how do we help them? One of the things that as I did this week-long van living each year, I got better and better at um, disappearing, kind of like being invisible. I would buy one Starbucks cup because I could plug my laptop in at Starbucks. So I would buy one cup of coffee, but then I would bring that cup back to sat, sit at my table so then people would think that I had purchased a cup of coffee. So they wouldn't bother me as I was working. I mistakenly went into a Barnes and Noble bathroom, which is an open bathroom, lots of stalls, lots of sinks. And I was going to try to get ready for that night there. So I wanted to wash my face, brush my teeth, change into my pajamas. It was terribly hard to do that because every time I heard a person opening that door, I had to run in the stall because here I had all these toiletries. And so you want to continually fly into the radar. You're trying to be invisible as, as possible, trying not to stand out. You don't want people to kick you out or ask you questions. This population is not one that you're seeing on the street corner with a sign necessarily. So how is it that we find them? How is it that we help them? And my suggestion is to pray and be looking for people around you who may be in need. It could be that coworker that you never see eating, who never goes out to lunch with everyone, who may look on the outside okay, but but some of the things they do or tell you otherwise just don't seem to match, you know? So if you're paying attention, you may notice some things that you know, are off. In that case, I wouldn't necessarily ask them outright if they needed help. 
but you may pick up bagels for everybody once or twice a week and see if they eat those and then look for ways to help them without being obvious. Because once again, are we really helping somebody if we're confronting them in, in that humility? You know, it's, it's more loving to try to help them without necessarily knowing maybe in the beginning what exactly their need is, just that there is a need. And so try to help in ways that you might feel led. But it's it really is opening our eyes. And I think we talked about this with the overview on the homeless. It really is opening our eyes to those things around us and loving our neighbors as ourselves, like Jesus commanded, you know, love God and love your neighbors. So if we're really taking the time to just kind of look around us and I think the more we start to open our eyes to the needs around us, the better that we'll get at seeing them. So even though this population is harder to recognize and to know exactly how to help, it's still worth the time. Carol, any suggestions that you have? Jen, do you have a survival kit in your car like I do where I have extra toiletries and other things that if bottles of water. So when I do come up against someone that is living outside that I have something to offer them. Yes. I'm ashamed to say that uh, I haven't had it since 2020. So yes, we've had, um, we've had those, um, you know, Ziplocs full of like clean socks or granola bars or things like that. And one of the, a side note really quick, if you have these kits in your vehicle and one of the things that I always tell people who ask is don't fill it with hard things to chew. A lot of homeless people do not have healthy teeth. So a lot of them are suffering from cavities or, or um, they've had their teeth pulled. So they need soft, very chewable foods. So don't bring apples, bring oranges or bananas. Don't bring, you know, hard granola bars, bring the softer like Nutri-Grain bars or whatever. So there's just those kind of things that those packets are very, very effective and very helpful. So. That's one way to create your own volunteer opportunity. Always good to do it in pairs with someone so you feel safe. You could look out for ministries that are providing essential care, such as mobile showers, mobile washing of clothes, great little programs to help them fund their efforts because they are actually providing something very crucial. So look for those kind of things. I always say carry some extra quarters because Mm -hmm. sometimes I would have volunteers go to a laundromat and I would tell them, bless someone in that laundromat, Mm -hmm. provide for their, pay all those quarters for them to wash their clothes and dry them and stay there and sit with them. And get to know them as a person. You know, it's always great to volunteer at uh, at shelters where they are feeding those in need. So volunteer your time there. Get to know those shelters because they always need volunteers and financial support. One time, God called upon me to go out 
to walk the streets with 75 bags of free lunches. And inside the bag, I put a map to city team, which was the closest resource for those people to receive um, social services and meals and shelter. And many homeless didn't even know where their closest resource was. So to have a map was great. And so I walked the streets that day in San Francisco and handed out those 75 lunches. It was a very valuable time. My husband and help me with that. That doesn't take a lot to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and orange slices and a small bottle of water to bless somebody in a day. There are times where I I can't volunteer or offer them anything if I'm in an unknown location and I am going to pray over them. They might not know it. And I am sure those women that are out there living in their cars tonight are pondering if God is really real. Does he hear their cries and their prayers? And he certainly does. And he wants the best for those kids in the backseat. He wants the best for that woman. This brings us to the end of our three-part series on homelessness. And we'd love to know what you think. So leave us a comment and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. And please hit subscribe and give us a rating so we can get this information out there to help people. We appreciate you listening. Thanks so much. If you found this podcast helpful, please do us a favor and hit subscribe. And then in the comment section, please feel free to share your own story of overcoming. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to next time.